The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missiodei.org. So this week, we're really just gonna dive into the first three verses. We're gonna introduce Jonah to you, the person, the message, uh, the, the theme of the overall book. And the theme of the overall book is really this. So we had a big idea that was gonna carry us through not only our sermon time today, but over the next five weeks is this. Jonah is a picture of a gracious God who relentlessly pursues both sinners and servants, right? So at the heart of Jonah, we've got this guy who is called to go to this city, Nineveh, and what is God doing by sending Jonah to Nineveh? He's pursuing sinners. But as we'll quickly learn, like in this text, in next week's text, uh, Jonah himself was a sinner who also happened to be a servant of God. And so he was a prophet, that one that was uh, given the task of proclaiming God's truths to God's people. And he was also fleeing God and God was pursuing him. And so that's a radical theme that we'll look at and explore every single week, how God is pursuing sinners, both those of us that, that could look outside of these buildings and outside of our homes and call our neighbors sinners, but also the sinners that are sitting in the seat with us, right? You, right? God's pursuing you. He's pursuing me. He's pursuing those outside the church, inside the church. He's pursuing our kids. And we wanna understand and discover what that means. Jonah's really about a God who continues to pursue his people. And we'll dig into this book and look at the many ways God's continuing to pursue sinful people, as well as over the next three weeks, we'll have a great opportunity as part of the sermon intro to hear stories of real life God pursuing people telling their Jonah story about how God's pursued them as they've tried to run away from God. And so we'll intermix a couple of those throughout the series. I believe there'll be one uh, for us next week. Also next week's an exciting time. Uh, Missio Day West was a church plant that was established uh, uh, just about a year ago. It's hard to believe uh, that we're almost becoming a year old and we've seen God add to the church and grow the church. And so uh, for uh, the first time since our existence, we'll be celebrating baptisms next Sunday morning right here. I don't know how it's gonna happen. I haven't figured it all out yet, how we can get a baptistry set up in here in a way that's not gonna kill us or kill the school. And so, but I, I will guarantee we will figure it out and we will baptize some folks here next Sunday. And I'm really excited uh, about that. And so I hope you make plans to join us uh, for that. Let's look at our text this morning, Jonah chapter number one. We'll read verses one through three. Bible says this, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And so as we, as we begin looking and understanding, the first thing I want us to do is introduce us to the main character of the story, right? Jonah is the prophet of God. And so I want us to look at Jonah as the prophet of God. He's, he's got an interesting story 
uh, what we know to be true about Jonah. There's a whole lot that we probably don't know, seeing that he's only referenced in this book of Jonah that most scholars believe is like a first witness account. Jonah himself is writing the letter. Some other scholars would differ on that. I don't think that who wrote it is as important as what was written, and so we won't spend a whole lot of time arguing the significance of Jonah writing it versus somebody else writing it. What we do know, it is a, 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 a biography or an autobiography, depending on the author, of Jonah's experience in regards to the city of Nineveh. One other text in 2 Kings chapter number 14, verse 20 through, through 25, introduces us to Jonah as well. See, Jonah was a guy who was a prophet called by God. A prophet was somebody who had been given the task to stand before God's people and deliver God's message. Uh, we see uh, lots of major prophets throughout the Old Testament. We see minor prophets. Jonah falls into that minor prophet category, one called by God, who prophesied or proclaimed God's truth to God's people during the reign of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the king who reigned in Samaria which was the capital city of Israel. And so Jeroboam rang in a time where the northern kingdom of Israel was divided from the southern kingdom of Israel. And we see uh, two different kingdoms being established, both under the family heading of Israel. And so let's look quickly at 2 Kings chapter number 14, verse 23, to understand the climate. Show me some grace on a lot of these names, because there's a lot of weird names that trip me up, and I did my best to pronounce them correctly, but... In the moment, I probably won't do as good of a job as I did when I was reading it the first time, right? So let's look at it. Verse 23 of chapter 14 of 2 Kings says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, so that's the, the kingdom, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, so that's Jeroboam, the, the, king, the, the king of the northern uh, nation of Israel where Samaria is the capital, is the son of Joash, and he's king of Israel, who began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years, right? Verse 24 tells us a little bit of interesting facts about his reign, and he says that, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin. Verse 25, it wasn't all bad things, even though he did evil uh, in, in the sight of the Lord. There were some things that he did that were good. He restored the border of Israel from uh, Labohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, right? So Jeroboam, we see, did what was right and what was evil in the sight of the Lord, but he also did good by restoring the border of Israel in obedience to the word of God delivered by the prophet Jonah. And so we very quickly can cast this horrible shadow of Jonah where it was like, man, it was just simple. Go to the Ninevites, talk about their evil, and go home. It's not a huge deal. We've seen Jonah's ability to take God's commandments and for him to follow God faithfully in the moment. So we know that Jonah's not foreign to this idea. But Jeroboam does evil and he also does good by restoring the border of Israel in obedience to the word of God delivered by the prophet Jonah. Jonah had been faithful to speak out against the evil of unbelieving before, right, very much right up to the king, Jeroboam himself, calling out his sinfulness and, and conveying God's message for the northern border to be restored. And yet, 
Here in this account of Jonah's life, we see an extremely different reaction to God's commandment to proclaim his truth. In Jonah, in our text, what we're gonna discover over the next four weeks is we'll see Jonah as a prophet running in disobedience from God's presence and from God's word to speak evil, uh, speak against, to speak uh, and bring light to the evil of Nineveh, right? We've already said Nineveh five or six times. What is significant about the city of Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, who at that time was the most powerful force in all of the world. They reigned uh, really strong between 900 BC and 600 BC, and their 300 years of reigning uh, were proved that they were ruthless conquerors, like kicking butt and taking names and just going through it, right? They were conquering everybody. In fact, as if we read on a little bit later in our Bible, we would see in uh, Isaiah chapter number sin, uh, number 10, that God would use the Assyrian Empire to eventually bring judgment to his people, the northern kingdom of Israel, the capital of Samaria. So Nineveh was the capital city of this empire who would at one point in time come and conquer and wipe out Samaria, where Jonah had reigned, where Jonah had prophesied to the king Jeroboam. And so we start getting a picture of why uh, Jonah would have difficulty in going to the Ninevites and speaking against their evil, right? I find it interesting that uh, he doesn't talk about go and speak against their evil and call them to repentance. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't go, go and proclaim the good news of Jesus, this coming Messiah that would come and take away all their sins. He doesn't say that either. He says, go and speak out against the evil. And it's challenging because we'll see later that Jonah was fully aware of the evil in Nineveh and was frustrated by it and was sickened by it and was grieved by it. Yet, when God gave him the command to go and speak out against them, he freezes and walks away in disobedience. In 722 BC, the Assyrians would conquer the Northern Kingdom and they would overtake Samaria. And for whatever reason, Jonah uh, was in that mix, okay? So a couple things we can take away from this little history lesson to make it a little more applicable is this. Not everything that evil people do is always evil. At the end of the day, God's rule, his sovereignty, his reign extends to all people in every place and in every circumstance, right? And so when we approach evilness in our heart versus the evilness of, of people's hearts out there, we very quickly can look and say, hey, we're not nearly as evil as fill in the blank. For Jonah, it was Nineveh. For us, it may be something completely different. We're not nearly as evil as this. And I think what we need to understand is the fact and the reality is that we're judged by our hearts and by our motivations primarily and our actions secondarily, right? 
And so we may put on good and righteous deeds and we may do good and righteous things and, and our actions may speak of obedience and our hearts might be full of disobedience. And God's reign and rule extends even beyond what you and I can see visibly, but to our very hearts. And as he reigns in our hearts, he sees the wickedness that sometimes doesn't come out in our actions. So this is important for us to think about. Most prophets of the other minor prophets and of the major prophets brought a prophetic word from God and delivered it to God's people. Jonah's a bit different, but he's not in isolation in that. The other prophet that comes to mind is Hosea. And like Hosea, the story of Jonah's life is a prophetic story. So he didn't take a message given to him by God and delivered it to a certain people. Jonah's life was the story. Hosea's life was the story. And as he, uh, as, he, as he lives out and as he writes this and as he communicates this narrative, there's tons of gospel implications and lessons that you and I can take away from his story. It was recorded and it was included in God's word to declare God's grace to sinful people. So we see Jonah as the prophet of God. I want us also to see Jonah as a picture of God's people. Jonah as a picture of God's people, right? The Old Testament is a narrative of God's people in Israel and primarily their disobedience and denial of God's grace and worship of false gods, right? All throughout the Old Testament, we would see that God's people run from God in disobedience and run to false idols, right? God in his grace would either send a prophet when they would no longer listen to a prophet, he would send a king. When they would no longer uh, listen to a king, he would send a priest. And God in his grace would continue to send him, their, his people, messengers to call their hearts back from worshiping those false idols and back to true worship of him, the one and true living God. God's people would repent. God's people would be restored into relationship with God. But then the next time something happened, next time a difficult circumstance arose, the next time a cooler God came down the road, what do we see? We see this pattern of uh, disobedience, repentance, rejection, uh, restoration, and so on and so forth, time and time and time again. But Jonah is also a picture of the New Testament church, right? And if we could dig into our hearts briefly this morning, we would say that Jonah is really a picture of ourselves, right? A picture of our disobedience to God's word that often keeps us from running, not to God's presence, but running from God's presence. Jonah was given the task of proclaiming hard and difficult truths to an evil people, and we see that he is running from the presence of God and running from the proclamation of that word that he had been commanded by God to go proclaim in speaking out against all the evil that the Ninevites have done. And so it's easy for us to look. And I think over time, we'll, we'll really have our hearts endeared more to Jonah. Because as I've spent time in this book, I've really understood, man, my heart 
and my actions are way more like Jonah's than at first glance I would have ever given credit to. Because I can look at it from, from the outside perspective and say, man, Jonah, it was simple. You, all you had to do was go say some hard things and move on about your day, and yet you couldn't do it. And I can very self-righteously sit back and say, man, if, if I'm given that opportunity, I'm not gonna do that. But it is extremely difficult for me to say hard truths to hard people, evil people, good people alike at a lot of times. And sometimes uh, subtly, yes, it's not like I board a plane and head to Mexico and skip out on all my responsibilities and totally leave behind my task and my family and the church and things like that. But in my heart, and that's, I'm as far away from the presence of God and being obedient to God's word as I possibly can, right? And so I think we'll look at Jonah where we might've come into this book with a bit of, man, what, what, what was Jonah's problem? We'll start to see the ugliness, the sinfulness and the rebellion uh, and the disobedience that exudes from our heart, even those of us that show up week in and week out and do what we're supposed to do, right? And so uh, our story kind of plays into Jonah's story like this. We run from hearing God's truth. We run from hearing God's truth. Sure, like I've already said, the measures we take from hearing and being obedient to God's word may not look as drastic as Jonah's boarding a ship and traveling across the ocean uh, to the other side of the Mediterranean. Our, our measures may be much more subtle, right? Our measures in not hearing God's truth looks like uh, being so busy that we don't have enough time to spend in God's word, right? Because we're overwhelmingly busy. We're constantly allowing ourselves to be distracted by the constant stimulation of media in what other format or whatever platform we enjoy consuming the media from. And as I've searched in my heart, and even as a preacher of the word, and as one who, 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 whose life and income and job and identity, if I'm not healthy, gets wrapped up in what I'm doing, finds it difficult sometimes to open up God's word and just hear the truths, right? And I can attribute it to a bunch of different stuff. I can attribute it to, man, I had, I had X amount of meetings this week uh, with people that needed help, or I had uh, two nights, two mornings this week when I normally spend time in God's word, I had to be at an early morning meeting, and so it was either I woke up an hour earlier, I got it in some other time, and the days got away from me. Like, it's so easy in the busyness of our schedule to uh, subtly, run from hearing the truths of God's word, right? And I wanna come uh, to you in, 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 in a way that is, makes your, your realizations and your rationalizations not make sense, but in a way that doesn't feel like too much harsh condemnation. So I hope that you hear the words that I'm saying from a lens of grace, right? The truth of the matter is, all of us, every single person in the room makes time for the things that matter most to us, right? And if we're not making time to spend in God's word, what we are actually saying and expressing with our life is that God's word isn't important enough for me to spend time with it, right? 
And so as we examine the motivations of our heart, our stories don't look like we're running out the back door of the church never to darken it again or that our Bible is ripped to shred and thrown in the fireplace. It's not anything like that. It's all the barrage of the rest of life that distracts us from spending time in God's word. And so we, we're not uh, uh, objectionably against it. We're just not doing it with the time that we do have. Right? And so subtly, we're not hearing the truths of God's word. We're also not making time to spend with God's people because of the practical challenges that are presented in doing so. Right, And so e very easily, when, we, when we're confronted with difficult truth, and remember Jonah's task was given to him by the Lord to go and speak against the evil that Nineveh was doing. Some of us are in here and we're rejecting hearing God's truth by not listening to a hard truth that comes from a somebody else. Right? And God uses the people that he's placed around us to speak tremendous truths. Next week, we'll look how God uses unbelieving sailors to accomplish his purpose. And so we discount everybody outside of ourselves and being able to teach us God's truth. And sometimes we hear difficult things and we run in rejection of it. But God's placed us in community to pursue deep, meaningful relationships that teach us truth, that guide us and point us to Jesus, and we reject it because it's challenging, it's difficult, cost a lot, right? And so we run. Looks different. We don't run like Jonah. We run subtly. We justify it. We even find noble reasoning that satisfies our consciences and is easy for us to get other people to believe. How often has my disobedience been clothed in uh, something that sounds really spiritual, right? Like God is commanding me to do something. It's like, ah, oh, it's just not God's will for me to do that. Like we're really good at being spiritual and putting spiritual language to our disobedience, because the truth of the matter is when I've used that in a way to deceive and, 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 and change people's feelings about me, they, they, they're, they're, I'm puffed up because they look at me on this elevated thing, man, that guy is spiritual. God's will said to do this and that looks really hard and he did it. Sometimes it's not God's will at all because I had not sought one person or I had not sought the spirit for direction, right? And so we use that. We use that type of language. And so our running looks better. It looks justified. It looks spiritual. But in the truthfulness and the darkness of our hearts, it's disobedience to God's hard truth. And so some of us have, some of us run away from hearing God's truth. Some of us run away from speaking God's truth. And so in Jonah, we see both, don't we? The word of the Lord came to Jonah to go and do what? To speak. And so he, he ran from hearing God's word and rejected it in disobedience, but he ran from speaking God's word hard truth. And so some of us uh, maybe fall in that category a little bit more. Perhaps it's because we lack the compassion and love for people that is needed to put ourselves out there proclaiming a truth that could be difficult to hear. And so we're self-serving, afraid of what proclaiming truth might cost us, right? Who's been there? 
I have, where I get, I'm gonna say something difficult to a friend or I'm gonna say something difficult to an unbeliever that I know is gonna drastically change the course and nature of our relationship. But it's something that God says is true. It's something that God says I should tell them. What do I do? Right? And so sometimes we're really good at making, well, they're just not ready to hear and understand that or they won't, they won't accept it or they're in a really tough place. And so we, we again, we excuse away something that really is just selfishness and self-serving because we're afraid to speak truth that we know is right. And we know that they wanna hear, right? Perhaps even some of us in our self-righteousness are afraid of speaking truth to evil people because God will show grace to people and we don't believe that does, grace deserves to be shown to this type of person, right? I think in some ways that's, that's, been, that's been the church of Jesus's stance in our, our modern day society. It's like we, we, we wanna love people with the love of Jesus and sometimes loving people with the love of Jesus looks like looking them in the eye and saying some pretty difficult things, right? But sometimes it's out of a self-righteous heart and we'll, we'll see Jonah. If you want something that blows your mind, read Genesis, Jonah chapter number one, verses one through three that we're looking in this morning. We'll dig into it. I don't wanna steal too much attention to it. And then read Jonah four, verses one through four. And we begin to understand Jonah's heart is not running because he's afraid of the Ninevites and what the Ninevites could do for him. He's not running because he's afraid to be uncomfortable. He's not running because he's afraid to speak hard truth. He's not running because he doesn't do this. If we read Genesis, Jonah chapter number four, verses one through four, we see very quickly, Jonah's running because in his self-righteousness, he hated the Ninevites so much, he was afraid that God would show them his grace. And he could not stand the thought of God being good to somebody who was his enemy, right? And so some of us, man, operate in that or we won't, will not spend the time, we will not pay the cost, we will not do what it takes to say hard truths to evil people because we don't want them to receive God's grace. And so we'll understand if that is our heart, have we understood and received God's grace? Few things reveal our misunderstanding of God's grace than our quickness to withhold God's grace from other people, right? So we'll look more in depth in that next week. But so, we're stuck with something that seems like a pretty desperate situation, aren't we? The good news of the gospel is this. It's even though even though we subtly run away from God, even though we drastically run away from God like Jonah, sometimes it's just in our heart, sometimes it's just in our thoughts, sometimes it's just in our minds, sometimes it's in our actions. Even though we run away from God, Jesus doesn't run away from us. No, instead he runs towards us, overcoming our disobedience in his obedience to the cross. Right, let me back up and say that again. Jesus doesn't run away from us. He runs toward us, overcoming our disobedience in his obedience to the cross. Let's unpack that a little bit. Romans chapter number five, 
Verse eight says this, it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? And so we're, we're Christians. Uh, those of us that are believers can, on this side of things, look and celebrate the goodness of God and, and all the righteous blessings he's given us in his son, and he has given us those things. But if we're not careful, we can forget that when Jesus was calling our name, when Jesus was pursuing our hearts, we were sinful people that were uh, much looked much more like the Ninevites than we looked like the church people that we've grown and become. And yet even in our sin, Romans 5 eight tells us Christ died for us. Let's read Psalms chapter number 139. I'm gonna read a pretty lengthy portion, verses one through 12. And I want you to pay uh, special attention to the first, I think it's first six verses, really talk about David's writing and he's talking about how God has known him, how he searched his hearts, he searched his thoughts, he searched his motivations, how he's known him like crazy. The second six verses is how even though he knows him, there's nowhere David can escape where God cannot find him and rescue him and receive him and restore him. So listen, read along with me. Just listen to the words and we'll expound on it in summary at the end. Psalms 139, verse one. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit up, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Verse four, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you knew it all together. He discerns your thoughts. He knows all your actions. He knows all your ways. Verse five, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Verse seven, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Right, if I ascend to heaven, God, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or if I make my bed in hell, God, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Listen to this verse. This is my favorite one of the whole text. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you, right? And so as we, as we meditate on those words, and I strongly encourage you to, to meditate them on them further this week, the first six verses is the depth to which God knows us and the depth to which God goes to pursue us in the next six verses. God knows the depth of your sin the extent of your brokenness, the ugliness of your heart, and loves you any way. Church, children, parents, 
alike. If you leave here and you know nothing, may we know the truth that is listed in Psalms 139, in Romans 5, that even in our running, even in our hiding, even in our rejection, even in our disobedience, we are loved and wanted and pursued by God. May this free us to uninhibited worship of Jesus and obedience to his word and purposes. Not because we're bound to duty, not because we're bound by chains as slaves to do it, but because in his goodness, he has set us free from all the bondage of our sin, all the bondage of our darkness, and he consistently and faithfully and regularly pursues us. Church, it's good. The theme that we will return to week in and week out all throughout our study of Jonah is that no matter how far we run, a merciful and gracious God pursues sinners. He redeems their sinfulness and he gives them his righteousness and then restores them from serving themselves to serving him, right? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus is the surest and most absolute promise we have that no matter how far we run, God pursues sinners and restores them to his service. What do we do in response to God's goodness in our life? So we examine our stories and the way that we run from God. I just wanna simply say just two things that are gonna sound very simply that I want us to meditate on and think about over the next few days and weeks and, and throughout this month as we examine the rest of the story, Jonah. The first is this, it's run to God, not from God. Sounds simple, right? We must understand that the grace of God pursues us in our sinfulness. Therefore, our sinfulness is not grounds from running from God, right? So understand, God pursues us in our sinfulness, so therefore we cannot make our sinfulness a grounds for running from God. Why did Jonah run from God? Because he was afraid that God's grace would extend to the evil people of Nineveh, and he was more afraid of that than he was more afraid of being disobedient to God. We must come to God, run to God, lay out our sinfulness, lay out our brokenness before him who not only can handle it, but knew it and still pursues us anyway. A couple questions we wanna ask ourselves. Where is your Nineveh, right? Where is your Nineveh? Who are your Ninevites? Are any of you currently trying to run from God or currently running from the mission that he has called you on. From the coworkers he has called you to love, from the neighbors he has called you to serve, from the family he has called you to forgive. Who are your Ninevites? Where is your Nineveh? And then who, what, or where is your Tarshish, right? 
Where is that thing, that place, that people that when you run from the presence of God, you run towards, right? Substances, media, right? People, sinfulness. What are the things that when you're fleeing from the presence of God that you're running towards, right? Then I think if we're gonna run to God, not from God, we must do this. We must discern the difference between conviction from the spirit and condemnation from the enemy, right? Because I've noticed that in my life, as I've been convicted of things by the spirit, I've interpreted those things as condemnation from my enemy. And so as God says, hey, I want you to do this, or I want you to speak up, and I want you to say this, it was like my mind immediately went to, well, God, why, why am I not good enough? See, I'm not good enough to say that. I'm not good enough to say that. I'm not good enough to do this. Why are you barraging me with these unreasonable tasks? And it's like, no, Matt, I just told you very simply and very quietly to do something. So we must know the difference. When God convicts us, it's not condemnation for something that we're not already doing. It's something he's inviting us into, a deeper obedience and abiding in his presence. And so run to God in those moments. We must also discern between doubt and disobedience, right? Between doubt and disobedience. Because sometimes in, in the, the internal workings of my mind, I doubt things. Can I do this? Am I wired for this? Is this gonna be able to be sustained? Am I foolish for even trying? Right, and I can interpret that in my mind, in my heart as I've already disobeyed, so what use does it matter anyway? Right, doubts are something. Conviction is something that we need to continually run to God with and ask him to teach and shape and mold and change our hearts to have more faith, more sensitivity to the leading of the Spirit, more faith to not doubt his goodness and not be discouraged and not be defeated as we do. As these things get confused, we run from the very grace of God that is trying to pursue us, that is redeeming us and is saving us. And we run away defeated, even though Christ has already secured our victory. And then secondly, lastly, and very quickly, run to God's grace and not your own strength, right? Each time God calls us to something, it's going to take the grace of God to do it. God's will is to redeem and rescue sinners. That sounds amazing when we're not putting ourselves in that category. But God's will is to redeem and rescue sinners, including the sinners sitting in the seat or standing behind this pulpit in this room, right? How are you currently working inside of his will to accomplish his mission to redeem and rescue sinners. If God's will for your life never challenges your comfort or never pushes you outside of your box or ever invites you into things that are unfamiliar or uncharted for your life, you've misunderstood or worse, you've manipulated God's will to match your personal and selfish desires, right? And so I'm asking and I'm pleading, run to God's grace, not your own strength. 
What has God called you to do that would require his grace to sustain you in doing it? The very mission that God has for you is the means of his grace that he is using to change you, to extend to you his grace in a way that is saving you and changing you to be more like him. If there was a secondary theme in the book of the Jonah, that would be it. The very mission that God has for you is the means of his grace that he is going to use to change you and to extend to you his grace in a way that is saving you and changing you to be more like him. In God's call on Jonah to pursue speaking truth to the Ninevites, God uses that to redeem and to restore and to change the heart of Jonah, right? So let's start looking at those things. How do we know if we're approaching God's will and purposes in our life and our own strength or in God's grace? Let me ask a very simple question, one that's deeply convicting to me. Is your first step at a difficult circumstance or at a difficult decision to assess and make sense of what is happening or is it to access the spirit through prayer? Been processing some pretty weighty and heavy things over the past several months and I've had the opportunity to sit down with good people that I trusted. And in seven or eight conversations about the same thing, it was over the same exact thing, seven or eight different conversations about the exact same thing over the course of the last several months. One person this past Wednesday afternoon stopped and says, hey, let's, let's quit trying to figure out what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, and let's ask the Spirit what he thinks we should do. Right? And I was grieved by that. I was challenged by that. Because in my heart, man, I can use the, the good wisdom that God's given me to process things away. I can make all the right choices. I can do all the right things. This makes sense for this reason. This makes sense for that reason. This doesn't make sense for that reason. I can organize my life absent of the spirit of God and in a subtle way be disobedient in doing those things that I can reason away doing without first stopping. Holy, faithful, good and spirit of God. What should I do? Guide me, give me wisdom, give me direction, give me discernment, right? And I'm, I'm appalled at the sinfulness in my own heart as a pastor of a congregation that needed to be told that after three months of processing the same thing, right? But I think we all live somewhat motivated the same way, right? Difficulty arises, circumstances are challenging. What can I do to fix this? Sometimes it's not God's plan to fix it at all. Sometimes it's God's plan for you to sit in it. And we would know that if we were willing to go to him and ask him. Truth is, we're afraid of his plan, afraid of his direction, for whatever reason. It may not be Jonah's reasoning. It may not be self-righteous that God would show grace to, to evil people. That may not be our motivation. We may love evil people. But our comfort, right? Our fears of the what if, our challenges may be the very thing that keeps us from accessing and trusting the Spirit's direction. In Jonah, we will see over and over again that God will do whatever it takes. God will do whatever it takes to change you and to draw you into 
a genuine relationship and life of following him, right? In our disobedience, in our rejection of his truths, in our running away from him, let us be reminded that Jesus runs towards us, fully aware of our brokenness, fully aware of our rebellion, and pursues us till he accomplishes his purposes anyway. May we be built up in that truth, church. May we be freed from the bondage and the baggage of our sin because of that truth this morning. I invite the band or Jordan back up. I'm gonna lead us in prayer and then a time of response. Father, we're grateful for your goodness. We're grateful for the good news of your gospel. We're grateful for the extent to which you pursue your people. And so God, I pray that throughout this series we'll be reminded of the reality that there's nowhere we can run to that you don't inhabit. There's no space that we can get to where you don't live there. God, there's no, uh, there's no person, there's no place, there's no thing that even compares to the purposeful plan that you've laid out for us. And even in our rejection and even in our sinfulness and even in our brokenness of running away from you, You'll track us down. You'll find us. You'll accomplish your purpose in redeeming us and changing us. And no greater picture of that exists than Jesus' pursuit of the cross. Where he laid down his life for unrepentant and unimaginable uh, un, uh, sinfulness and ugliness that pervades and overwhelms our lives and our hearts. And at the cross, he laid down his life so that I could have life. He uh, uh, was obedient to the cross to cover and atone for my ugly and nasty disobedience. Help me to see that new Help me to see that and believe that for the first time if I'm an unbelieving person. Help me place my faith in Jesus even this morning. And if I'm a believer, God, help us to rest in that reality, in that truth. Nothing I can do that keeps me from the pursuing God who wants me in his presence. So even when I mess up, even when I'm sinful, even when I rejected him all week, even when I've run in the 100 miles an hour the opposite direction of him, may I fall flat on my face, repent of my ugliness and sin, and run back to the open arms of God through the finished work of the cross, not on my own strength, all on his grace. God, I pray that you teach that to us, that your spirit would apply that to our hearts this morning. Amen.